On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. There's plenty coming up in today's programme, so I might as well head straight on with our quick look at this morning's front pages of the Sunday newspaper, starting with the Sunday Independent, which tells us that a private investigator has been hired to track down the assets of former hockey star Katrina Carey, who was under guard investigation for allegedly defrauding distressed borrowers. The Irish Mortgage Hotel, uh, Holders Organisation says that it instructed a private investigator on Friday after the RT Investigates documentary, which revealed details of lavish spending by Miss Carey's company, including a 55,000 BMW registered in her name. The former hockey and camogie player from Kilkenny was accused in the RT documentary of defrauding a total of 18 people of around half a million euro in an alleged mortgage scam. The IMHO says it now represents seven people who allegedly lost deposits ranging from 7,000 to 37,000 euro. I should also say just on that front as well that the Sunday Times tells us this morning that the activities of Carysford Asset Management and Katrina Carey are now being investigated by the Garden National Economic Fraud Bureau as well. Now, the front page of the Sunday Independent also tells us that Gardaí are investigating an allegation that a young woman with an intellectual disability was raped by a staff member in a residential facility during the COVID-19 lockdown. The criminal investigation has been underway since last year after the young woman disclosed the alleged abuse to her family and specialist detectives are now in the process of interviewing the young woman and her family. It is believed that the staff member was suspended uh, pending an allegation. Uh, we also have an interview today in the Sunday Independent with Sean Fleming, the junior minister who hasn't been seen uh, out and about much since his um, ill Fage's interview on radio a couple of weeks ago where he suggested the people should shop around and stop complaining uh, to deal with the rising cost of living. Uh, he's given an interview with Hugh O'Connell where he goes into all of that, but he also says that credit unions should be filling the gap left by the departures of Ulster Bank at KBC from the Irish market and should start lending more mortgages. So that's the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times says that Ireland is ready to slap laws on defamation. Now, slap is S-L-A-P-P. That's an acronym that we'll explain in just a minute. But we're told that Ireland could become the first European country to introduce legislation allowing for the dismissal of abusive defamation cases that are taken only to deter public interest discussion and investigative journalism. Uh, Cabinet Minister Helen McEntee is due to bring proposals to Cabinet on Tuesday to reform the current draconian defamation law, including the abolition of jury trials and the introduction of this new anti slap mechanism. What is slap? I hear you ask. Slap is an acronym for strategic lawsuit against public participation. It has already been legislated for in America, Canada and Australia and the European Commission is about to do likewise. Basically the idea is that some people will willfully put in uh, the threat of legal action almost on a vexatious basis merely to, to ward against the idea of trying to stop there being public interest reporting. Uh, this new legislation would try to deter all of that. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Times Scientists say that it is essential to monitor the highly contagious subvariant of Omicron, which is expected to become the dominant form of COVID in Ireland in the coming days. Laboratory experiments done in Japan have found that it causes much more severe illness in animals. The cabinet is expected to approve the ending of compulsory mask wearing in all public places at a meeting this coming Tuesday. But some scientists have warned that infection levels are likely to rise after the BA2 strain surpasses the original Omicron variant as the population moves about more freely. Uh, the tribute noted that the latest letter to the government by Tony Hula and the chief medical officer says that that now subvariant already accounts for up to 40% of new cases in Ireland. Uh, the Business Post has uh, some more details from leaked recordings of Department of Health interviews. Uh, it says that these new leaked recordings uh, reveal a senior official's concern about the horror of waste in the HSE and questions over the need for a supplementary budget of 514 million in 2020. Just worth bearing in mind that just, just to distill that for a second, the department is warning, wondering whether the HSE genuinely did actually need a half billion euro budget top up in 2020. Just let that sink in for a moment.
Uh, the Business Post uh, has obtained recordings of meetings in which the officials raised concern about the effect that the HSE's recruitment crisis would have on the ability to open some planned new hospitals. And separately, that newspaper has established that the HSE is considering making an €80 million Euro correction to its 2020 accounts due to what it terms are technical accounting adjustments. Uh, the Business Post has also confirmed that the HSE was ordered to return €267 million Euro to the Exchequer last year due to a surplus of funding carried over from its 2020 financial year, which I suppose... That does illustrate then why there might be some doubts around whether the half billion was needed uh, the previous year. Also on the front page of the Business Post this morning, it is hard to see how carbon emissions will fall this year, according to the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Laura Burke, who's the Director General of the EPA, told the Business Post it was unlikely that emissions would drop in the agriculture sector uh, as well as in energy and in transport during 2022. Her comments raised doubts about the ability of this country to hit its targets on emissions reductions. Again, worth bearing in mind that the idea was to uh, cut emissions by an average of around 7% every year. So if it's not cut by anything this year, then it just makes the the work all the harder uh, a little bit later towards uh, the end of this decade. And finally for now, uh, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. What clashes with Minister in pub over pay? This is an exclusive by John Lee, the group political editor of the Mail on Sunday, who says that one of the country's most senior civil servants loudly confronted Housing Minister Dara O'Brien in a crowded pub over the Cabinet Minister's comment that details of a controversial €81,000 pay rise should be published, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. Department of Health General Secretary Robert Watt challenged the Minister after he publicly called for transparency about his huge wage hike. The drama unfolded in a packed bar, Riley's Pub on Merrion Row, on Thursday, February the 10th, shortly after Mr Watt confirmed that he had taken the salary increase. The small pub is just 50 metres away from the Department of Health headquarters on Marion Street. It is popular with civil servants and politicians. Uh, there is more details about exactly who said what and who was there in the pub uh, inside the mail on Sunday. If that's the sort of uh, gossip that you're into, uh, it is well worth a read. And it is gossip that we will talk about in just a couple of minutes where the panel who are in studio to uh, discuss this morning's newspapers. We have Elaine Lachlan, the Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Examiner. Uh, and also joining us on the line, a man whose titles alone could probably fill up the entire hour a man who once upon a time uh, stewarded this slot at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning on News Talk he's now the presenter of the Stand podcast uh, Eamon Dunphy is with us Eamon you are not with us in studio you're still uh, taking some uh, some baby steps back into the world I suppose you might say uh, you're joining us remotely at home uh, before we talk about the stories that are in the papers um, you, you are still isolating a little bit because of some, some medical questions that you might have around Omicron so on that front how do you feel about the news this week that Neffet is about to be stood down and that everyone is basically going to be getting on with their lives as normal? Well, I think it's uh, premature, uh, Gavin. I think I am immunocompromised. I have emphysemia. Um, and therefore, this, as this is a long disease, um, I am still would be in the at-risk ca- category. Um, but I do feel um, that um, Omicron is still around. There's a variant of Omicron now. We believe, um, and it really, we well, if we shouldn't be, for example, as they are in the UK now. If you're COVID positive, you don't have to tell anyone or declare. It. You can go into a restaurant or a bar and infect other people. Um, yeah. So this, so this I, thing you propose is just for listeners who aren't aware. This is what they're now proposing in Britain that even if you are COVID infected or COVID positive, there would be no requirement to isolate. That you could be positive, but effectively, it makes yes. no difference. You could still go about your life. Yes, but that matters to us. You know, all the uh, traffic between here and Britain, people, it also uh, has an impact in the north, which has an impact down here. This is done, I think, in Britain for political reasons. I think we still have to be careful. I think uh, Luke O'Neill has been around and out and about in the last 24 hours, Gavin, saying Mm. 
you know, COVID hasn't run away and we should keep the restrictions, some of them masking, for example, on public transport um, and masking, masking in certain settings. We should still retain those in the interests of everybody, because even if you get uh, Omicron and it's relatively mild, um, there's long COVID um, and there are other implications for the spread of the disease. And the more this disease spreads, the more likely there is to be a variant. So, yes, I want, of course, for in the interest of business, uh, in the interests of people who have been isolating for two years, yes, we need to get rid of every restriction mm. we can. But certain basic things like masking and, of course, reporting if you have contracted COVID, we yeah. should keep... So does it basically sound like that you feel that the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater a little bit, that in the rush to try and get back to normal, that there's there's some people who are being overlooked or willfully forgotten about? Yes. And I feel people who are uh, older, people who are immunocompromised, um, are being exposed in a way that's deeply unfair. Okay, uh, we will come back to all of that a little bit later on because we just wanted to, to explain to listeners, first of all, why Eamon isn't with us in studio. But very glad to have you this morning, Eamon, anyway. And thank you for joining us. As I said, Elaine thank Lachlan uh, of the Irish Examiner is with us in studio. Um, we will talk a little bit more in detail about the Business Post uh, tapes again this morning. But first of all, um, Elaine, it's very difficult to look past the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday and the idea that Robert Watt may have been so displeased at the public pressure to reveal whether he's taking his salary that he would accost a cabinet minister in a pub in clear view of people who were willing to talk to the press about it. Yes, and the, I have to say there's an astonishing level of detail in that uh, piece put together by John Lee mm. of the Irish Mail on Sunday. You know, he describes how the minister entered the bar at half nine with two Fianna Fáil colleagues, Paul McAuliffe and Cormac Devlin and Fine Gael TD Emer Higgins. They had all been attending an Oireachtas committee and obviously decided maybe to have a few drinks afterwards um, mm. and have a chat. About 10 minutes later, uh, Robert Watt entered and it is understood from, it has to be said, multiple sources who yeah. appear to be both in the minister's camp, Mr. Watt's camp, and also, you know, by standards, mm. not involved with either <laughs> group. Mm. Um, so he's he definitely appears to have done his homework and spoken to as many people who were present as possible for this piece. Um, it's understood from the report that Dara O'Brien then made some sort of a comment around whether he maybe got in a round of golf or he hoped that he'd got in a, a round of golf during yeah. his Dubai Because yes. um, people will know that, that Stephen Donnelly just after the mass relax, uh, relaxing of restrictions uh, was in Dubai at Health Expo for a couple of days and was joined by Robert Watt as the Secretary General in the Department of Health and a lot of the, the question marks around uh, Robert Watt's salary I think kicked off just at around about that time. So Robert Watt comes back and Dara O'Brien says oh I hope you got a round of golf in when you Yes, were there. which uh, on the face of it sounds a bit like a, a bit of jovial banter mm. but it, it appears maybe that, icebreaker. Exactly, but it appears that Mr Watt didn't maybe take it that way and from numerous witnesses <laughs> mm. it was explained that they it got pretty tense pretty quickly and complete transparency were the words uttered quite loudly by Mr Watt mm. numerous times at the minister. Now that refers to uh, comments made by Darrell O'Brien in the the days prior when he was asked about Mr Watt's salary and whether he should make it public. If you'll remember, Gavin, a number of ministers had come out to say, including Thonish Lee of Radker, that it was a private matter, that the salaries of our public 
senior mm. public servants are a matter for themselves. Unlike politicians, they don't have to make them available to yeah. the public. Although, as, as it happens, I mean, everyone in Robert Watts' instance, they, they know what he is entitled to draw down. The question mark was whether he was actually taking it all anyway. But yes. everyone knows what, what he is paid notionally anyway. So the question mark was merely whether he was actually taking it all home or whether he was leaving a bit on the table. Yes. Now, Darrell O'Brien did go out on a limb. He was uh, among a f- number of, well, a, a small number of ministers who said that, yes, he believed that there should be full transparency and Mr. Watt should make mm. those details available and, and make them public. Um, so that's where the, the row came from. But it does seem like it got quite heated for uh, a number of minutes anyway yeah. in that very small bar. So I imagine that anyone... Uh, who was there uh, not involved with either group had a bit of entertainment that night. Yeah, to be, to be fair, uh, for those who don't um, frequent the, the, the watering holes of, of Marion Row or Marion Street and who aren't familiar with it, Riley's is, it's a pub around the corner from government buildings and the Department of Finance. But for those who don't know it, it's quite small. So it, it could only really ever house something in the region of maybe 20 to 30 people at a push. And if there was a bit of a row or some, some raised voices in one corner of it, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that everyone else in the bar would be able to hear it because it's not a huge facility by any means. Um, Eamon, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about the business post tapes and the frank sort of dead discussions that are encountered there. I wonder, do you think that there's anything untoward or anything remarkable about um, a high ranking civil servant, but a civil servant nonetheless taking on an elected and constitutionally appointed minister in the way that Robert Watt seems to have done? I think it is a little questionable. I can tell you about an encounter I had with Robert Watt uh, at a dinner party hosted by one of our leading journalists about four or five years ago, uh, maybe a little longer. Uh, Robert Watt in a previous life had been a senior civil servant in the Department of Finance. Mm. He's an alpha male. He's very robust. And I had a robust conversation with him myself about something um, of public interest at the time. And he was, um, he, he's a, a strong personality. He is very opinionated. And um, it, the question uh, that he poses for everybody is, should a civil servant, uh, who is Secretary General now in the Department of Health, be somebody with strong opinions who wants to um, get them, see them through, or is he there to advise the elected representatives? It's a very, very serious matter. Mm. I mean, Yes Minister was a very funny um, television show, uh, but it really consisted of the joke was that senior civil servants would thwart the will of the people mm. by making fools of ministers uh, and by leading them around by the nose. And there is an issue and uh, now a very serious issue that involves Robert Watts department and him. That is Slauncher Care. Mm. And during this week, the Eruptus Health Committee, I'm sure you'll be aware of this, Gavin. Yes, absolutely. And um, Roshin Shortall had a rather sharp exchange with Robert Watt. And there is a major story of Slauncher Care not happening. Now, Slauncher Care yeah. is one of the greatest initiatives uh, because it's all party to solve the deep health crisis in this country. And Roshin Shortall is one of our better public representatives. Yeah. She's former junior minister at the time of James Wiley, who nobody will ever forget. <laughs> um, and Roisin, uh, you know, is a person that we should listen to um, and Robert Watt should listen to. Mm. And that's the point. Yeah. I think Mr. Watt might be too robust. I've no problem with his salary, incidentally. Mm. We want to get able people and I've no question with his ability either. But 
The question is, what is his role? Yeah, yeah and Gav, the- I think that Eamon brings up a good point there from speaking to ministers who are currently in government and former ministers who've dealt with Mr. Watt over mm. the years, both in health and formerly in public expenditure. Yeah. There are two schools of thought on his approach and this won't be the first time that Mr. Watt has squared up to a minister, maybe in a pub, mm. but certainly <laughs> within uh, the Department of Antishuk and in government buildings. He has been known to make his views very, very clear to ministers yeah. if he does not agree well, with them. You can take the attitude that if it, uh, you know, you have to break eggs to make an omelette and that's mm-hmm. somebody who is brusque and to, to an extent maybe domineering, that if you want to have, particularly in health, where there's a lot of reform that needs to be done, there's a lot of systems that are processes that are broken and need fixing that you want someone who doesn't really mind if they leave a few corpses along the way once they get it done. Yeah, and that was actually the point made to me by one former member of government who dealt with Mr. Watt and he basically said, well, in the private sector, if you have a strong leader, you get things done. Mm. Whereas in the civil service, sometimes there is a tendency to to kind of dance around a subject for fear of offending someone if you actually you know, stand up against them. So in ways he acknowledged and perhaps admired might be a strong word, but certainly acknowledged the way Robert Watt was able to stand up to ministers and say, no, this is not a good policy to pursue and it is not within the public interest. Um, And so there were obviously robust conversations Mm. had numerous times, but as I said, there probably are two schools of thought on, on yeah. the way he operates. Uh, well, there, it is one thing, I suppose, to have an exchange like this in a pub where there are other people who aren't connected to either Dara O'Brien or Robert Watt who can bear witness to the whole thing, as evidently some of them have, uh, to John Lee in the Mail on Sunday today. But maybe it is another thing to have people speaking frankly in a meeting which they think is not being recorded, where they feel that they have some duty to speak candidly. And that's what brings us then to the front page of the Business Post, which has more recordings of um, recordings of conversations within the department of Health by those who are responsible for, for the governance and the running of the health service. Um, apologies to any small listeners that are uh, listening today, but again, the, the headline on the front page of the Business Post puts it pretty bluntly. Uh, new health tapes, claims of batshit targets, horror of waste and no fear of respect. And again, they're talking about how Michael McGrath doubted that the HSE actually needed a budgetary top-up of half a million, half a billion euro in 2020, that there is a, quote, horror of waste in the HSE, that those with oversight of department finances were told to look the other way when budget rules weren't followed, that political pressure led to money being spent without proper assessments, that €30 million Euro was given a one-off funding last year and that required an agreement between uh, the public expenditure and health, which apparently was said that we can't put that officially in writing, that the HSE's recruitment crisis could reopen, uh, affect the opening of new hospitals, which in itself is remarkable, and moreover, Eamon, that the HSE has gone rogue and doesn't fear or respect the Department of Health. Yes, and I think health is our biggest problem as a society, um, and it has been exacerbated by the two-year COVID experience. Mm. Um, And the Department of Health has to function properly. Um, And within that, the HSE has to be seen uh, to be working efficiently, and I think there are doubts about uh, that. And this is where we come back to the Slanted Care and the Oireachtas Health Committee this week. Uh, if we, it isn't Robert Watts' job. You'll know better than me, Gavin, because this is your business. How government yeah. and politics work. It's not his business, is it, to decide what is and isn't a good idea. It's the politicians' mm. business, surely. The elected representatives who are accountable. And it's Robert Watts and every other civil servant's business mm. to give advice. 
Yeah, on, well, uh, but I suppose the, the, the difficulty that you have between in health and HSE is that you have such a, a massive agency like the HSE, which is responsible for trying to deliver public health policy, but it is not the body because that's the Department of Health, which is responsible for drawing up that policy. So even if you have a minister or a secretary general that are trying to steer policy in one direction, then you have the HSE, an entirely separate agency, which is responsible for delivering it. And there's, there's clearly some gaps there. Yes, and I just the, the point, I suppose, of the present dispute in the um, slaughter care matter is about regionalization, yeah. which is essential to uh, see um, slaughter care realized. Now, slaughter care has been stalled. And the feeling is Laura McGahey resigned, which was a, a, a very big. Um, Eddie Malloy, who is a very respected um, former civil servant consultant. Yeah, now, Eddie Malloy was on 61 News. Uh, this week is a former member of the Slaughter Care Advisory Group. He is also at, uh, dismayed. Now, if there is an, an attempt, and there appears to be, to slow down Slaughter Care, an all-party government committee uh, devised mm. to solve our problems in healthcare, some, it appears, at the centre do not want the regionalization yeah. element. I should probably say, it just to, to, to point put across uh, Robert Watts' um, alternate view, but he doesn't uh, ex- accept the idea that he is against slaughter care, but that he, in some correspondence, was noted as saying that in the middle of the COVID crisis was not the time to go about massive structural re-engineering of the health service, that you have to deliver on the crisis that is there in front of you and that you can't spend that time you know, moving mountains for longer-term reform as well, that basically that the short-term crisis has to trump anything else. But he doesn't accept that he is opposed to slaughter care and indeed Micheál Martin went to bat for him in the doll on Wednesday saying that he is completely in favour of it but that you know you, you can't you know move mountains in a day Was was Roisin Shortall questioning though his commitment to the to full regionalisation yeah Yeah and the, the regionalisation which is essential this is the point of Slaughter Care now the question uh, I totally accept I'm sure most people do that Covid uh, was a difficult time for everyone involved in the health but slaughter care uh, has been up and running for a long time, as you know, Gavin. Yeah. These are proposals. 2017, I think, yeah. Yeah, and these proposals have been worked out uh, in the national interest on an all-party basis. It isn't really the business of either the HSE or Robert Watt to be um, hindering a process uh, in which there's very much uh, invested in the mm. national interest. That would be my point. Uh, I should say, by the way, that the Department of Health has issued a statement this morning about the the nature of the recordings upon which the Business Post is basing its story. They're taking some issues with that, but we are going to speak to uh, Richie Oakley, the editor of the Business Post, a little bit later this hour. So I'll bring you the full statement and allow him a right of reply then. Uh, Before we do move on, uh, Elaine, on the substance of uh, what the Business Post has found, because again, those bullet points, any of them would make a newspaper splash in Mm -hmm. any day, that there's a horror of waste in the HSE, that the department were told to look the other way because budget rules weren't being followed, that the recruitment crisis could affect the opening of new hospitals and that the HSE is going to any of those would yeah. be a newspaper splash. And probably two that, that stood out for me was that Michael McGrath doubted that a £514 million supplementary budget was needed or utilised as intended mm-hmm. because it, you will know from following the Dáil um, and interactions in the Dáil, Gavin, that Every single week, issues are brought up, whether it's scoliosis, whether it's cancer care, whether it's mental health issues. And the Taoiseach or whoever is in uh, the Taoiseach's uh, chair yeah. during leaders' questions will say, money is not an issue here. We have the money. It's it's 
finances are yeah. available. It's just getting the resources delivery, in place. Yeah, yeah. So this proves that. But I think the final bullet point where it says the HSE goes rogue and does not respect um, the Department of Health was the one that probably stood out for me mm. the most because it is... If that is the reality, then we're in serious trouble. And I think it's backed up as well by a piece that was in um, the Mail on Sunday, which related to two junior ministers of the Department of yes, Health. Yes, sorry, I, I meant um, to point this out as well. This is a genuinely quite a shocking uh, yeah. development where two of the junior ministers, two of those who serve underneath Stephen Donnelly in the Department of Health, who are uh, Mary Butler, the Minister for Mental Health, and Anne Rabbit, who's in charge of disabilities, and they both feel like they can't get anywhere with the HSE or indeed with their own department. Yeah, to such an extent that they told a meeting of their own parliamentary party this week that perhaps they should table parliamentary questions on their behalf so they can get answers. They were saying that they are getting, they are asking the HSE for information and details on issues relating to their own departments mm. and they're not getting them, that it's a game of table tennis and that the the answers to their questions are actually being leaked before they get the information themselves. And both of these junior ministers, while they're first time uh, ministers of state, they're no shrinking violets. They're no. very, very good at their jobs. And, and Anne Rabbit has actually stood up in the doll on multiple occasions, raising difficulties with yeah. own, within her own department, um, especially with issues around the Northwest and um, care there. Mm. So it's not as if these are not competent ministers that no. are afraid to ask questions. They are asking the questions, it appears, but they're not getting the answers back from the HSE, well, yeah, which is really concerning. Which is even more remarkable when you think about the budgets that they have underneath them, because as the piece points out, uh, Mary Butler is in charge of mental health, which has a budget of $1.15 billion, and the elderly, which has a budget of $2.33 billion. Like the, the, the areas that she has under her notional control account for about three and a half billion euro a year in public spending and Anne Rabbit's disability portfolio is responsible for 2.2 billion. There are other full cabinet ministers like once upon a time when when Heather Humphreys wasn't running uh, rural affairs and and, uh, rural development that would have been a standalone minister with a standalone budget which would have been maybe only in the region of of half a billion a year and they'd have a full seat at the cabinet table and all the agencies would come to heel underneath them. Now you have people who are responsible for three and a half billion of public funding and even they can't get answers to how that money is spent. It, it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. And departments that have serious issues, as I said, the, the Brandon report, which came under Anne Rabbit's yeah. remit, and then as well the CAMS report relating to the Kerry region recently, mm. which came under um, Mary Butler's remit. So you'd imagine that the, the HSC should really be uh, working very closely with both of those ministers. Yeah. But it, it seems when ministers go asking for questions, they're told it's none of your business. Yeah. As I said, the Department of Health has raised some issues about the uh, the recordings which have formed the basis of the Business Post tapes. We'll have uh, the Department Statement and Richie Oakley from the Business Post a little bit later this hour. Still joined in studio by Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner and remotely by Eamon Dunphy, broadcaster, journalist and host of The Stand podcast. Uh, somebody has used our hashtag this morning to say that uh, Eamon Dunphy referring to someone else as an alpha male and opinionated. This is about Robert Watt. Pot and kettle. <laughs> but I do get his point. Uh, Eamon, I hope you don't, don't take offence with that. But uh, <laughs> I don't, except I'm not the Secretary General of the Department of Health. Well, I think we would all probably quite like to be on 297 grand a year though uh, on which point someone else says that the debate around the effectiveness of Robert Watt's approach assumes that he has the public interest at heart the salary that he claims would suggest otherwise that's from Paul who was using the hashtag on the record NT um, speaking of alpha males there is a lot understandably in today's papers Eamon about Vladimir Putin and the increasing assessment of Western powers that he's already got his mind made up about invading Ukraine yes um, I think um, we're in a situation now where uh, Putin 
appears to have made a calculation about weakness uh, in the West um, post uh, the Trump presidency um, and also uh, the divisions in Europe with the UK leaving Europe. Uh, and I think he and I think uh, President Xi, uh, Xi in China have calculated this is a time where in Russia's case they can reclaim some territory in Ukraine um, and in the case of China, maybe uh, reclaim uh, Taiwan, which they consider to be theirs. Um, I think there's no doubt that Putin really wants um, to uh, invade and take Ukraine. And indeed, I think he wants to expand further into the former Soviet bloc into Eastern Europe. Uh, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, these kind of countries. Just to take a zoom out approach there for a second, like what is to be gained there? Because obviously it, it is not something which would be met without resistance. It would have to be a, a long and, and very brutally armed campaign from Russia if that were its goal. So what's what, yeah. what's in it? Like what, why would you want to go back to those those days of Soviet territory? What like what's in it for them with all the resistance well, that there'd be? There, there is evidence. So he gave a television interview last year, Gavin, a rare one to an American network, and he said. He described the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, as the greatest catastrophe for Russia in his lifetime. He was a spy in East Germany. Yeah. Uh, he was a KGB man in East Germany. So in his lifetime, he has seen the Soviet uh, or the Russian uh, Russians lose an empire. Now, he wants to reclaim that empire. Uh, and the fear is that if he took Ukraine... Uh, that he could eventually, don't forget, he, eight years ago, he uh, annexed Crimea, yeah. the Crimea. He's in Donbass eight years, and nobody in the West responded to that. So we can't appease him anymore. And the, I think his question, the question, the West is threatening sanctions, but he will be well prepared for sanctions. Uh, and the only serious sanction that I can see is the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Yeah. Uh, and Biden, has, Joe Biden has said they will not allow that to work. That's to pump gas mainly to Germany, but mm. to Europe in general. So the, it's the will of the West, the resolve of the West, that he is trying to test. And as I say, uh, President Xi in China will also test our resolve and our will uh, to defend Ukraine. And that is a gamble he may be prepared to take. Mm. Um, in the Business Post, Elaine, uh, there's an interesting piece by, by Marion McKeown who says that uh, Joe Biden's in so starkly warning uh, what Vladimir Putin might be about to get up to and indeed maybe with similar comments with what Boris Johnson told the BBC last night as well, that at the very least they would be removing any element of surprise so that no one can claim that they would be shocked if this were to kick off in a major way this week. Mm -hmm. And perhaps when Joe Biden did come out with those very strong words uh, in recent days, people were thinking that maybe he was exaggerating slightly, but it does seem like other countries now, including the UK, as you said, Liz Truss was at that security conference in Munich yesterday and basically said that we're on the cusp of the most dangerous moment for European security since the 1940s. So intelligence... Um, that the UK have garnered seems to um, be coming up with the same scenario as the US, which is extremely concerning at mm. the moment. Um, and obviously we had the Ukrainian president as well speak um, to leaders at that summit in Munich yesterday, calling for
for sanctions to be introduced immediately. Um, he's saying that we shouldn't be waiting until Russia strikes um, mm. to put sanctions in place. Well, they have to be can, put in now. Can you do something like that, though, you know, without Russia having necessarily uh, fired even a single shot? Like It, it seems like it would be very preemptive to slap sanctions on based on what you think they might be about to do rather than something they have actually done. Yes, it would be difficult, you'd imagine. Um, I also picked out a, a really good piece from Vincent Boland in the Sunday Business Post as well. And he kind of explores the thinking of uh, Vladimir Putin and goes back to a, a rather long essay he wrote over the summer, mm. basically saying that uh, Ukraine is regarded as a renegade province of Russia that has to be brought back into into Russian uh, control mm. um, and he even makes the point that the, the word Ukraine derives from an old Russian word that means periphery um, <laughs> so basically wow. saying that uh, and goes into a lot of the history of Ukraine stating that in 1991 Russia was robbed now that theft that he's referring to the Russian president is uh, the overwhelming vote to uh, vote of independence that Ukrainians uh, took in 1991 but he still believes that that is theft. He ended that and this is where Vincent Boland goes into maybe where the thinking process of the Russian president is slightly unravelling and doesn't really um, tally with reality. That that essay, and it was I think it was five thousand words, ended with the Ukrainian Ukrainian citizens will make the decision for its future, um, and of course we know that the majority of people in Ukraine are against rejoining Russia and that they see the positives mm. of actually aligning further with Europe. But still, the Russian president believes that actually, no, Ukraine yeah. would be better off and perhaps would prefer to be part of Russia again. Uh, on your point, uh, Eamon, about the, the pursuit of um, of uh, the, the return of a Soviet empire, and we'll draw a line after under this. Um, there's a piece on, on page 21 of today's Sunday Independent by columnist Mark Galliotti, who's uh, under the headline that obsessed with legacy, Putin might be about to make a terrible mistake. And one of the, the arguments which is put in there is that, you know, no one has ever lost an empire and managed to get it back again. You didn't have the Romans managing to reclaim everything they lost. The Austro-Hungarians and the Ottomans never got back all the stuff that they lost. You know, Britain is never going to get back the empire that it's given away in the last 70 years. That it's a fool's errand to ever try to restore past glories because that's just not the way the world works. Yes, I, I can see that. But the question in Putin's mind is, though, uh, and Elaine raised it there, that they do regard... Ukraine is part of Russia, and it is part historically of Russia. And uh, his uh, the question he has to ask himself is, does the West have the resolve to fight? And mm. there's growing isolationism in the United States of America. There's divisions in Europe with the UK having left the European Union. Uh, the Germans are dependent on Nord Stream 2, this gas pipeline. Yeah. So he thinks all the cards are, he thinks the cards are stacked in his favor as much as they ever will be. This is a moment of opportunity and not just opportunity in relation to Ukraine, China and Russia could be and are in a position to be, they may feel, to reshape the world order. Don't forget in the European Union, you have uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who is no Democrat. You have developments in Poland, uh, which are deeply anti-democratic and also anti, uh, in, in a cultural way, completely unacceptable. So we are n- you're not looking at the West as an entity uh, representing a set of values. 
you're looking at a very divided West that has allowed him to get away with the annexation of Crimea in 2014. 15,000 people have died in that region, Donbass also. So he's got away with quite a bit, and so have China. Um, persecution. Just one point to make. Sure, yeah. The Winter Olympics just finished in China, and we know about their repression. The Champions League final, Gavin, is being played in St. Petersburg this summer, which is Vladimir Putin's home city. So the West has really been very acquiescent in all its, whether it's the Olympic movement, whether it's UEFA, mm. and also governments. The Germans wouldn't allow uh, anyone to overfly fly their territory with weapon support for the Ukraines. This yeah. is just a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I wouldn't allow third countries that they'd sold arms to, and Germany is a big arms producer, to sell them on to the Ukrainians. So we're looking at a complicated picture here. Yeah, uh, I, for one, am shocked that the Champions League supported by Gazprom would be taking place in, in St. Petersburg <laughs> uh, this, this May or this June, whenever it is. Exactly. Um, Eamon, I know you need to leave us in a minute. So just before you go, can I just get your thoughts on the uh, the piece? It's also in the Sunday Independent, but it's on the front page of the Sunday Times that Ireland will shortly legislate so that anyone yes. who is threatening a defamation case on, on purely vexatious grounds just to sort of bring journalism to heel could now find themselves unable to do so. Yes, it's a brilliant story. The Sunday Times, Mark Ty is the reporter, they lead with the story, and it's a hugely important story um, because uh, this use of the libel law uh, to uh, threaten uh, or intimidate uh, newspapers and journalists has been prevalent in Ireland, and we could think of all the big names. Mark Ty actually cites John Delaney, mm. um, for having used it against the Sunday Times and others. Um, it's a very important story indeed, and the Sunday Times have it as their lead story. Could I just end, Gavin, sure. um, by saying how important the Sunday Post's breaking of these stories is. Uh, I wish it's a really good newspaper now, but there's better resourced and more widely read uh, media and listened to media organizations that really should uh, do that kind of journalism and look at this story in health uh, that's being revealed. It's very, very, very important. Okay. Uh, Eamon, I know you have to leave us, so we'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Eamon oh, Dunphy, so broadcaster, former footballer, and uh, of course, commentator and presenter of The Stand podcast. Elaine Lachlan is going to stay with us. After the break, we'll be joined by Richie Oakley, the editor of The Business Post, to talk about today's front page story and the Department of Health's concerns about it. Eileen has been in touch to say, surprised to hear Gavin calling the USSR an empire. There was no empire, emperor or king. Um, it was more of an analogy around uh, the Soviet sphere of influence, but I do take your point. Obviously, the Soviet uh, Union wasn't an empire in that sense of the word. Um, we said earlier on that we would come back to the story on the front page of the Business Post about um, new tapes of uh, meetings in the Department of Health, which underline uh, a fairly dysfunctional attitude, it would seem, a relationship between the Department of Health and the HSE, to say the very least. Um, early this morning, and this is quite unusual, I have to say, at a quarter to eight this morning, the Department of Health issued a statement about uh, this reportage. I'll read it to you in full because it's not too long. The Department of Health is aware of alleged recordings of internal meetings which took place between 2020 and 2022 being circulated. Notes claiming to represent comments made by officials also appear to have been circulated. No official at the Department of Health has given consent to be recorded while carrying out their duties as part of the deliberative process. Publishing details of meetings between government officials in the ordinary course of their work, which were recorded without the consent or knowledge of those participants, is a direct violation of individual privacy. 
work by the department and its officials with the HSE, uh, focusing on improving the transparency around financial matters, is clearly in the interest of the public. However, the department strongly believes that quoting the casual comments of individuals will only serve to limit constructive debate and dialogue across the civil service, and this is damaging to the public interest. Currently, no recordings on which allegations are based have been made available to the department and therefore it's unclear what discussions they refer to or if they have been doctored in any way. This makes it difficult to validate or respond constructively. It is widely acknowledged that there are many legacy issues across the health service to be addressed. The Department of Health and the HSE work closely together to manage the health service and through Sloan Care implemented the much needed reform to deliver a better health service for the public. This working relationship, characterised by mutual respect, is professional and constructive. So that was a statement put out by the HSE this morning and around a quarter to eight. We're joined now on the line uh, by the editor of the Business Post, Richie Oakley, to get his response to that. Um, Richie, thanks for taking our call at short notice this morning. Um, the department believes that quoting the casual comments of individuals will only serve to limit constructive debate and dialogue across the civil service and it's damaging to the public interest for those comments to be published. What do you make in response to that? Well, I suppose my immediate uh, response uh, is that we believe that this is in the public interest. We're talking about hundreds of millions, billions of taxpayers' money. We're talking about the highest spending government department. We're talking about one of the biggest employers in the state, in the HSE. We're talking about one of the biggest budgetary spends in the country. Um, And we're talking about a health system that uh, I think most people would agree has struggled to perform and struggled to show a value of return for that money. Um, So our feeling is when we were, when we became, when we came in uh, possession of these tapes, we, we listened to them and it's quite clear that this is dysfunction and mismanagement and various issues being raised about the health system by the very people who are paid and who work in a role to oversee them. Mm. And uh, we felt that the public uh, who pay their taxes, who then watch that money be spent by, by the Department of Health, have an interest, uh, there's a public interest for them to know how their money has been spent. And that's not just mm. uh, a, a media idea that we think that's that's an established uh, basis of, of modern democracy and a, any number of FOI requests have established that for example when I when I was a young reporter myself I took a case uh, I, I was involved in a case where the politicians uh, tried tried to, to prevent the release of their expenses and we were able to show in that case that as we were talking about public money they the public had a right to know exactly mm. how the money was being spent. So that's that's fully no, which, which is all fair. I, I don't think anyone would argue with the idea of accountability on that front. But um, all public meetings or all meetings between civil servants are all to some degree about the spending of public money. So I suppose maybe the department has a concern that if you were to apply the same defence in all cases, then literally any candid comment or any workplace remark exchanged between two people, not knowing they're being recorded, would then be well, fair I, I game, and they don't believe it should be. be fair, the, the freedom of infor- information legislation means that journalists uh, like yourself, myself, can can apply, and we can get emails between civil servants about their their daily work. Uh, most of these meetings are supposed to be minuted, and those minuted are supposed to be available under freedom of information, and we're supposed to be able to get. So it's interesting. In this statement, the department themselves is, is saying they have an issue with um, transparency. Um, and that's the key thing. I, I mean, the first week when, after we did these tapes, they came out to say that some of the content was inaccurate. And they did that while confirming the content and the veracity of the content. We had a week of various different stories and other media outlets following up the information to show that the majority of the, the, the vast, vast bulk and majority of the, claim, of the claims from civil servants in the first set of recordings were in fact correct. This week they're coming out in a kind of a play the man, 
not the ball type scenario. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I would argue these aren't casual conversations between civil servants. These are civil servants uh, raising serious issues about the spending of vast amounts of, of taxpayers' money. And again, there's a public interest in, in knowing what it is they're, they're saying. Uh, what about the, the other one uh, point in that statement? Publishing details of meetings between government officials in the ordinary course of their work, which were recorded without the consent or knowledge of participants, is a direct violation, it says, of their individual privacy. Uh, our, our legal advice is that um, we have journalistic privilege and because the information is in the public interest that we are okay to publish it. Okay. Uh, any other comments to add before that, before I let you go? Well, the department is saying alleged recordings. Uh, I've listened to the recordings. They're, they're not alleged recordings. They they are recordings. We're aware of, of where where they, they came from. We've checked the veracity. Um, it's quite clear the recordings haven't been doctored. And I think you will find that none of the Nobody has, has come come to us to say that anything we reported was not said or hasn't been said um, at meetings. I think the department is understandably upset that we have this information and that we're in a position uh, to put it out, but we will continue to do so, so long as it's in the public interest. Okay, uh, thank you very much for joining us again at short notice, Richie, because I know that we, we sort of caught you slightly uh, off guard and we did invite you to come on, but really appreciate you doing so. Uh, Richie Oakley is the editor of the Business Post there responding to that statement uh, from the Department of Health this morning. A uh, little bit of breaking news, by the way. Buckingham Palace has confirmed that Queen Elizabeth uh, of the United Kingdom has tested positive for COVID. It says that she's experiencing mild cold-like systems, but expects to continue light duties at Windsor uh, over the coming week. And she will, of course, continue to receive that uh, medical attention. Um, Elaine Lachlan of the Irish Examiner is still with me in studio. Just, Elaine, before we go, um, one thing we haven't touched upon today but which is, is featured quite heavily in today's papers understandably um, is the proposal to wind down Neffet after 25 months and 80 odd meetings and what that's going to mean for the governance of the pandemic going forward. Mm-hmm. And it is it has to be acknowledged as a significant moment in our what is now a long walk out of this Covid uh, road that we've been travelling for the past two years. Um, I think Hugh O'Connell in the Sunday Independent has a really good background piece mm-hmm. on, on Neffet and how they were actually established Uh, They were set up in January of 2020 when really our focus was not on COVID. It was, as he points out in the piece, it was on the general election. Um, And this body was set up, uh, it seems to be at uh, the behest of the CMO um, and without consultation with Cabinet. So it was actually the day after it was established Mm. that that Simon Harris brought that memo um, to his his then government colleagues and obviously we've ha- have a have a different government in place now and it goes through the power i suppose that that rather large group of um experts mm. has had over the past 2 years um in bringing forward measures that have had p- put significant yeah. strain on our capacity to live a, a normal regular life when you think of think back to times when yeah. we couldn't go beyond two kilometres of our home really extraordinary measures that we mm. lived through over the past two years we, we will think back at some point in the future and just think how surreal it was that we did manage to, to at least keep some sort of societal cohesion together in the, in the midst of uh, so many different liberties or curtailments on uh, all of our liberties uh, no doubt it is something that will be discussed a little bit more this week particularly on Tuesday uh, when the cabinet probably does sign off on the winding down of Neffet uh, in the meantime Elaine Lachlan Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Examiner thank you for joining us and once again thanks to Eamon Dunphy who joined us a little earlier this hour On the Record on News Talk Brought to you by PwC Great minds think unalike Different skill sets diverse opinions it all adds up to the new equation